appreciate the opportunity that I've been given to present, to have this time of study dedicated to a topic that honestly and maybe shamefully I say, could say that I've never really given the time and attention to as I have during these past couple months. Prayer is something that as human beings we're very familiar with. It's something that we as a race of people do quite often. It's one of the few commonalities between almost all religious groups. Whether you believe in Jesus Christ or a different deity, most religious groups share the desire to pray, to have conversation and communion and fellowship with their creator, with their deity, and with their protector. Now, sometimes what that means with regard to prayer is that we become so familiar with prayer that we forget the importance, the value, and what the purpose of prayer truly is. Just recently in my home back in Arlington, my wife and I have welcomed a young child into our home as a foster child. This child came from a background that doesn't really, or didn't really have a lot of religious history with it. And so prayer was something that was common in our household, but was extremely strange to this young lady, this young girl. And over time, the past few months, she's picked it up to where when we pray those opening words, Dear Heavenly Father, she'll raise her hand and say, Let me do it. Prayer is something that is amazing. It's something that brings people together, but it is something, as the apostles and the disciples asked in Luke chapter 11, verse 1, it can be taught. And so what we're going to do this afternoon for just a brief while, we're going to study these two sections of verses in Luke chapter 11 and Matthew chapter 6 and understand the answer to this petition, Lord, teach us to pray. To set our minds for this study, if you would, open your Bibles to Luke chapter 11 and we'll read there the first four verses with which Jesus answers the petition that the disciples asked Jesus. In verse 1 it says, Now it came to pass, as Christ was praying in a certain place, when He ceased, that one of His disciples said to Him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught His disciples. So He said to them, When you pray, say, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come, Your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us day by day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Jesus here begins to answer the great question, or the great petition, Lord, teach us to pray. This is, in Luke chapter 11, a copy of Jesus' prayer that He gives during the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. And so we have these two parallel verses. And as we begin this afternoon, it's important to understand the background of these verses. And as we do, we might even understand an important contextual clue and key that helps us grow in our knowledge and understanding of both of these lessons within Luke 11 and Matthew 6 that helps us understand the true purpose of prayer. And what that true lesson is that we can learn is that there is a possibility that these are two separate prayers. While in Luke 11 and Matthew 6, they seem to be the same prayer recited word for word, just Luke leaves off the ending, there are some decided differences within the two that maybe let us understand that these are different prayers given at different times repeated by Christ. That wouldn't be a new thing for Christ to do, to repeat a teaching of His own, maybe in a little different way. He's done it before, and so why not do it again? One of the clues is context 
and we note that they're different. The context and the background of both these prayers is different from each one. In Luke chapter 11, the context is said to be a question or a petition asked by the disciples to Jesus, the Lord, teach us how to pray. Yet the background of Matthew chapter 6 is a little bit different. In Matthew chapter 6 verse 5 through 15, we're transported to the middle of Christ's Sermon on the Mount. And in the midst of that sermon, Jesus begins to instruct those listening on the subject of prayer. But not because He Himself is praying and is asked about prayer. Instead, Christ begins to teach regarding prayer as a continuation of the theme that He started in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, where He says, For I say to you, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. These words that Jesus gives here, that unless your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, sets the stage and sets the theme for what will come, at least up to Matthew chapter 6, verse 18. McGarvey says in his notes on Matthew, uh, regarding Matthew chapter 6, verse 1 through 18, he says these verses refer back to Matthew 5, verse 20, where the disciple is told that his righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. Matthew's fifth chapter deals with the actions themselves, but his sixth chapter treats the motives and manner of action. And so the context of Jesus' prayer in Matthew and Luke is a little bit different. Enough so to where Linsky would write in his commentary on Matthew that the contexts are so decidedly different that we are compelled to conclude that, as was true with regard to other sayings of Jesus, this prayer too was repeated by him. Now, while we read Luke chapter 11, verse 1 through 4 in our text, and it reads a lot like Matthew chapter 6, verse 5 through 15, but especially 11 uh, through 13, there are some differences within the writings and the verbiage that Jesus gives. And if you just look at the New American Standard, or the New King James, excuse me, you miss those important contextual and verbal cues that are different. There's different wording in both prayers. In Luke, Jesus records or says a, a prayer that is different than his prayer in Matthew. This is what that looks like in the New King James. In the New King James, Matthew records the petition that our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. As you can tell, there is differences within the prayers that Jesus gives. Now we could chalk this up to the fact that maybe God inspired Luke to just record different aspects of the same prayer. Or you could understand it with the different backgrounds and contextual clues leading into why Jesus gave his models. That Jesus here is just repeating two separate prayers. And there's an important point that comes from the fact that Jesus is repeating two separate prayers. And that is, the lesson is, these models, these words that Jesus gave, were never meant to be repeated rigidly or as some form of, this is what you do at the beginning of school. This is what you do before your football game. I uh, gave this sermon back home in Arlington, and one of the uh, gentlemen there, he said back when I was in high school, before the game, we'd all kneel in the locker room and we would say the Lord's Prayer. He says, I wasn't religious, meant nothing to me, but we would do it and it pumped us up. That's not the purpose of the Lord's Prayer. 
And the difference in the Lord's Prayer in Luke, and, Luke 11 and Matthew chapter 6 helps us understand that. In fact, Fowler in his commentary on Matthew draws this conclusion. He says, Certainly Jesus did not intend only a verbal repetition of this prayer, since Luke gives it in another form, omitting words and phrases which were reported in Matthew. Jesus' purpose in modeling prayer was to do just that, to model what prayer can look like within the life of a believer. The purpose of Christ giving these two models of prayer is not to create some mechanically driven tradition in which humankind just repeats word because that's what they do. Instead, Christ seeks to provide key components of prayer that every Christian or every follower of Christ should and can incorporate into his and her prayer life. And those components, I believe, can be summed up into three areas. First, Jesus seeks to demonstrate the proper attitude in praying. Second, Jesus seeks to demonstrate the proper approach in leading a prayer or going to God in prayer. And third, Jesus wants to outline the proper content of a righteous prayer. He doesn't seek truly to give us a word-for-word -word repeated um, line that we're to use. Instead, He wants to outline some content that can be prayed ourselves or can be used entirely for their own prayer that we can adapt to our own situations, to the needs that we are in and use these ideas to facilitate our own prayer. These three ideas are what's going to guide us through the remainder of our study this afternoon and we're going to look at how each of these three concepts shows up within Matthew and Luke's account of Jesus's model prayers. First point is that Jesus seeks to demonstrate a proper attitude of the one who is offering prayer to God. Now, this begins when you back up a few moments from Matthew chapter 11 and you understand the entire section of prayer. Jesus begins to explicitly teach in Matthew chapter 6 verse 5 through 8 about the proper attitude and then goes on to model the correct attitude in both of his prayers. Jesus gives in Matthew chapter 6, verse 5 through 8, three attitudes required for one who wishes to have a righteous prayer accepted by the Father. We're going to read those verses. Matthew chapter 6, verse 5 through 8. Jesus says this, And when you're praying, you should not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogue and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you that they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetition as the heathens do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows the things that you have need of before you ask of Him. Within these few verses, Jesus establishes, and then will imitate, the proper attitude of prayer. First, the proper attitude of prayer is one that is not focused on self-exaltation. The proper attitude for a righteous prayer is one that seeks to glorify God. In verse 5, he recognizes this and he says, And when you pray, you should not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogue, standing in the street, so that they may be seen by men. Jesus' concern, I'll say this at first, is not for the standing, it's not for the low location at which they people were praying. 
It's the being seen by men and loving it aspect of the hypocrite's prayer that Jesus condemns. Prayer is always something that is meant to glorify God and not to demonstrate your expertise or your greatness as one who can lead a prayer. Prayer is never an act of self-glorification. Instead, prayer is always focused on the glorification of God. Jesus would demonstrate this in verse 9 and in Luke chapter 11, verse 2, when he recognizes and begins his prayer by hallowing, by giving God the respect, honor, and reverence that he is due. This is not about how wonderful a prayer Jesus could have prayed, and he can pray a wonderful prayer. It is about making sure that God gets his due respect, and Christ gets none. And so Jesus demonstrates that our primary concern in prayer is to treat God as holy. The second attitude that Jesus teaches is an attitude focused on the conversation with God and nothing else. In verse 6, he reminds us of the importance of privacy in prayer. That could be wherever we are, our prayer is meant to be a private conversation with God and between yourself and God. Linsky would note that the closing of one's door symbolizes praying in complete privacy. All intrusion is barred out and the worshiper is alone with God. This especially involves the worshiper's mind. When we go to God in prayer, our prayer is meant to be something that is focused and pointed upon what is needed and upon the prayer and the conversation with God itself. Our mind is not to be thinking about the sports scores that are going on or other things happening in our life. Instead, our attitude should be focused on what we're doing with God. The third attitude of a proper prayer is one of thoughtfulness for the words that we use. In verse 7, Jesus reminds us of the importance of not being like the heathens. He says, And whenever you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathens do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Jesus rebukes the fact that some would use vain repetition or many words as a way to glorify self or of a way to think that God would hear them because of the multiplicity of their words. And so Jesus shows tremendous concern for the thoughts and the words that we pray. McGarvey makes an interesting quote upon verse 7. He says, Strictly speaking, Jesus does not here forbid either long prayers or the use of the same words in a prayer when the heart is sincerely prompted the utterance. He himself prayed at great length, even continuing in Luke 6 verse 12, all night. In the garden he thrice repeated the same words. What he does forbid is making the number and length of prayers an object of consideration or source of trust. The idea is this. You can pray a prayer that has repetition. There are those in our life and in my life who have lost children. And when we sit down and we talk about prayer in their lives, one of the things that often comes up within their prayer is the continual repeated prayer for God to protect their children. And with those individuals and when the heart is involved and when thought is given to the words, repetition is not the sin. It is the vain, the worthless aspect of the repetition. God wants our heart and our thought to be involved in our prayer life. He doesn't want this to be just something we do out of rituals. He doesn't want this to be something we do thoughtlessly because He cares. He knows what we need and He wants us to come to Him understanding our need for Him. Jesus' great concern is for our words to have thought and heart 
behind them. The preacher would say in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 2, that you should not be rash with your words, and let not your heart utter anything hastily before God, for God is in heaven and you on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. The preacher, in all his wisdom, understood an important point of prayer, and that is, do not use words that are unnecessary. The prayers of the righteous are those that are focused on glorifying God, on maintaining an intimate conversation with God, and one in which thought and consideration go into their words. That's the setup for Matthew's rendition of the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6. Jesus instituting and demonstrating the proper attitude that goes into our prayer. But then Jesus in Matthew chapter 6 and Luke chapter 11 goes into what we call at times the Lord's Prayer or what is more properly known as the model prayers. And within those two prayers he models two important aspects for every individual's life if they seek to pray to God in a way and a manner that would be pleasing to Him. Jesus first demonstrates the proper approach one must take in leading a prayer, whether that be a private prayer or a prayer that is public before a congregation. Both models Jesus gives differ in their approach, but maintain an important structure that teaches us the proper way as God's people to lead a prayer that is faithful, that can be accepted by God and answered in a way that would produce God's will being accomplished in our lives. Now, as we said already, but we should note again, the differences within Jesus' prayer and Matthew in Matthew and Luke is not meant to confuse us or to complicate the nature of prayer. Instead, the differences are there to remind us that prayer is not a rigid set of words. Instead, the exact words we say may differ, but the way we lead our prayers must always follow the approach that Jesus models. And this is His approach. First, both prayers approach God. There's an important part and aspect of prayer that goes to God. And Jesus understands that in both of His models. Prayer is always meant to be addressed to God. Mike Chris, Chriswell, in his commentary on Matthew, said every prayer should include acknowledgement of the one to whom we speak. Jesus recognized the right recipient of prayer. It wasn't himself. Instead, it was God. And he notes this even earlier on in Matthew chapter 6, verse 6. He says there, But when you pray, go into your room, and when you shut your door, pray to your Father. Jesus, in setting up the attitude for prayer, recognizes that God is the one to whom we are to pray. Again, in Philippians 4, verse 6, Paul says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, with prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. God is the one who receives prayer. The Bible teaches that we pray through Christ, but not to Christ. We pray through Christ to God the Father. And prayer is always, from the beginning of time, meant to be addressed to God. In Isaiah chapter 8, verse 19, Isaiah would rightfully ask, And when they say to you, Seek those who are mediums and wizards who whisper and mutter, Should not the people of God seek their God? Should they seek the dead on behalf of the living? Isaiah recognizes the important point of prayer within the troubled lives of Israel. They were to be overrun. They were to be facing war. And he says, There will be some who come to you claiming that you should go before mediums and wizards and those who whisper and mutter, but God's people should seek their God. 
No one should seek the dead on behalf of the living. Not only do both prayers approach God, they have the right recipient of prayer, but they both do so with the proper respect. Jesus' model prayers both approach God respectfully. Jesus, in His prayer in Matthew 6, differs from His prayer in Luke 11, and that He couples Father with the designation in heaven. One writer uh, wrote and said this about this coupling of Father and in heaven. He said, The prayer opens with the invocation reminding the disciples that all prayer is grounded in a relationship to God as Father. The designation in heaven reminds the hearers of God's transcendent power and distinct sovereignty. Intimacy must always be properly balanced with a sense of reverential awe. We live in a society and a culture today that has embraced this concept of the idea of dad or even this idea, and it's a weird word to say, but daddy, with regard to the name and title of God. This generation that throws these ideas out missed the mark of Jesus' prayer in Matthew chapter 11 and Luke, Matthew chapter 6 and Luke chapter 11, where it is a prayer that goes to God with complete reverential respect and awe of the person and character of the one he is praying to. And both prayers follow this reverential beginning with the statement, Hallowed be your name. To hallow means to set apart from everything common and profane, to esteem, prize, honor, reverence, and adore as divine. That's what's going on when Jesus prays this prayer to the Father. The term, we might say, has a twofold meaning. First, it demands that we recognize God in every way is holy and is to be set apart from all things common. By His nature, that is who God is, and we must in our prayer recognize that. But second, by saying these words, it demands that we ourselves treat God as holy. A person cannot truthfully use the words, hallowed be your name, without accomplishing both of these ideas within their own life. Jesus rejects the irreverent life of disobedience, and so does God in prayer. And so in order to rightfully and truthfully pray to God, hallowed be your name, our lives must seek to place God in a place of reverence and in a place that esteems Him as holy and divine and which adores Him as our Father. Third, Jesus teaches us that our prayer approaches God, or when we pray, Matthew's prayer approaches God with His will as primary focus. The primary focus of all righteous prayer must ultimately be the advancement of God's will. We'll talk about that, what that looks like a little bit later on and what will we're talking about. But the primary focus of all prayer must ultimately not be self and what I want, but the will of God and its accomplishment wherever it may be found. Now this does not exclude prayers of need, as we'll see in a moment. But no matter what our prayer is focused on, it must have an ultimate focus of God's will. James says that one reason we fail to receive the things that we ask for is because of this. In James 4, verse 3, you ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. James recognizes an important truth with regard to prayer. And that is when prayer becomes about selfish things or about satisfying our own pleasure, we ask amiss and he says plainly that we do not 
receive. He follows that statement up by saying in James chapter 4, verse 13 through 15, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. James recognizes that there is an important part of human life that plans. We make plans. But he says no matter what the plan may be, no matter how far out that plan may be in life, ultimately your greatest desire in prayer and planning is that the will of the Father be accomplished. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills. In all the planning we as humans do, we must remember to maintain a focus on the accomplishment of the will of God. The fourth thing that we need to learn how to do when we approach God in prayer that these lessons or these models give us is we need to learn to approach God in confidence. That may seem like a bold statement as we are nothing but dust or small in the eyes of a Creator who has created, sustains, and maintains our life. And yet there is an important aspect of confidence in prayer. In both Matthew and Luke, Jesus models a humble confidence everyone must replicate when praying to God. He prays for daily need. He prays for forgiveness. And He prays for deliverance, all with confidence in God's ability to achieve each of these requests. James would say of the confident attitude that we as Christians must have when we go to God in prayer, in James chapter 1, verse 5-6, through 6, He says, If anyone lacks wisdom, ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For he who doubts is like the wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. There is some confidence that is required when we go before God in prayer. Now, this is not earthly confidence in self and my desire or in my right to receive the things that I am praying to God. Instead, James notes that there is a confidence in God, that we have faith in God. To ask in faith, we might say, requires two things. It requires, first, that we believe that God can accomplish what we're asking Him, and second, that God will accomplish what we're asking Him. And Jesus does this within His own prayer without stating it verbally. He prays for the forgiveness of sins, not doubting that God could forgive Him and not doubting that God would forgive. He prays for daily bread, not doubting that God could and not doubting that God, a loving Father, would. When we go before God in prayer, we have to understand and embody this same humble confidence before God that we have faith in His ability to both do and that He will do what we ask of Him when we ask in the appropriate ways. Now there's a final section of this prayer that Jesus wants to outline and demonstrate for all of His followers. And that is, Jesus seeks and wants to outline the proper content of a righteous prayer. I can't tell you how many times people have come to me and asked the question, what should I pray about? Or how many times you've asked somebody, or I've asked somebody at church, would you lead a closing prayer or the main prayer? And they thought, I don't know what to say. What do I say? And so you work on that, and you work through what you can say. And yet Jesus gives, within His two model prayers, 
the proper content of what should go into a Christian's prayer. The content of our prayers is just as important as the spirit of our prayer and the way we approached God in our prayer. All three are required to have a prayer that is righteous in the eyes of God. It's important to know that God is interested in what we pray about because the content of our prayer manifests the attitude of our inner hearts. What's in our hearts will come out in our prayers if they're selfish, if they're about me. They will come out in our prayers, and God understands that. Now, one of the primary, primary problems people face, as we said, is trying to find what to say. And even though prayers found, the prayers found in Matthew and Luke are not to be prayed rigidly, they do offer six themes which can either be coupled together to form a prayer or be the theme of your own prayer entirely. The first theme that is developed within the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6 and Luke 11 is the growth in the reverence of God's name. Jesus prayed, Hallowed be your name. Both models lift to God the plea that His name be hallowed or treated as honored or adored. And while we as Christians are not to treat the literal name of God with disrespect, what Jesus is asking for is far greater in scope than just people being respectful of the name God. We hear it all the time, the name of God being used disrespectfully, but the term, hallowed be your name, is far greater than just His name. In fact, Linsky notes regarding the name of God here, he says His name is not a mere sound or concept or thought that is revealed to us. It is God Himself revealed to us. The term, name, acts as a placeholder for the entire character and person of God. When we pray for a growing reverence of God's name, we pray for more than just the world not to use His name in a profane way. Instead, we pray for growth in the reverence of God's nature, His character, and His personality, and who God is, that the world would begin to treat God in all the facets that He is known in a way that is respected and honored. And as Christians, as we live in a world that continues to degrade the name of God and the person of God, this should continually be a part of our prayer life. That God's name be reverenced, be treated as holy by all who come in contact with it. The second characteristic or piece of content that Jesus models is the advancement of God's kingdom when he prays out, your kingdom come. Now, I'll admittedly say this concept of kingdom is one of the more controversial aspects within the Lord's Prayer here. It's often the part of the prayer and mainly sometimes the only part of the prayer that if we were to recite this prayer, we leave off. And this comes about because the idea of kingdom is often used interchangeably with the idea of church. And there's precedence for that in Matthew chapter 16, verse 16 through 19. We know those phrases there where Jesus promises to build His church and then promises to give the keys of the kingdom to Peter, thus using the terms church and kingdom interchangeably. And yet then within Acts chapter 2, the church becomes in full force. It comes and it's open to the Jews and will soon open to the Gentiles as well in, Je in the pre preaching there. And so the church, or the kingdom, has come. And so as we pray this prayer, many will 
think to leave off this statement as a way and a manner to represent and understand that the kingdom has come and this portion of prayer has been fulfilled. Now, there's a second view with regard to the coming of the kingdom. Linsky says that his kingdom is not the mass of his subjects merely, but his kingly authority, dominion, power, and rule, as revealed by or in all of his subjects. The other view of Christ's term in this verse, in Luke 11 and Matthew chapter 6, is this, that he is referencing the reign of God over all people. Thus, for as long as sin exists and humankind lives in rebellion to God, this should be a major focus of prayer, that God would reign within the lives of those who are faithful to Him here on this earth. And so the struggle becomes understanding which kingdom Jesus is referring to. Jesus' message was filled with the preaching of the kingdom as the church. The kingdom is coming. He and John the Immerser continually preached in reference to the church. Now, what I'll say is, the answer probably lies somewhere in the middle. Bowles, in his commentary, sums up the issue like this. He says, since his kingdom has already been established, he recognizes that the kingdom is the church. God's children now pray for the spread of the kingdom. We can pray for the perfect obedience and allegiance of all created things to his will, hence that the kingdom come in that sense. This may be one of the better answers to the question, and I know a little of both is not everyone's favorite answer, but it might be the most right answer. That Jesus was praying for the kingdom to come, that the church would come as the Lord's mission, and the Lord wanted it to be accomplished. And we today can continue to pray those words with the correct understanding that we're not praying for the coming of the church because it is already existing, but we are praying for the correct and perfect obedience and allegiance of all created things to the will of God. And so there's a little bit of walking the fence with this answer, but it seems to be what most fits Christ's purpose with praying your kingdom come. Third, Jesus prays for the advancement not only of the kingdom, but of the will of God. He prays, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now we didn't discuss this earlier when I brought up keeping God's will as the focus of our prayer. And what's important to understand and note, and what sometimes is difficult to understand, is that within Scripture, the term will might be in reference to different types of God's will. Depending on who you ask, on who you read, there are about three to four different types of will within Scripture. Depending on who you ask, there will be a few less or a few more, and they'll each have their own name for the type of will. So what I might call them is what looks like this. There's God's sovereign will. That is, God's ultimate control over all that has, all that He has, and will occur in the universe. The fact that the world keeps spinning. God is sovereignly, and He is over all that. There is God's moral will. That is, God's revealed commands in the Bible that teach how humans ought to believe and live. There is God's preferred will. That is, which He would prefer us to do, but does not regulate. There is God's permissive will. And that is acts that God neither purposes nor desires, but allows humankind to accomplish. Within these four types of wills, you can imagine that the fourth one is not what Jesus had in mind with regard to the will of God being accomplished on this earth. And so the will seems to fit within the first three. And Jesus is praying that God continue to hold His sovereign will over all humankind, 
that his moral will, the teachings of Scripture, will continue to advance and permeate the lives and the hearts of humankind and spread and grow and find good hearts, and that his preferred will would continue to be met with correct decisions by those who make up the faithful of Christ. And so of these, the first three seem to be what Christ has in mind when he models for us appropriate content for our prayer. As God's children, as God's people, we are to pray that His will be accomplished. In James chapter 4, when he prays that the will of God be our focus in our planning, it is this, that we will have opportunity to do God's will, that God's sovereign will will give us the time to accomplish the goals and plans that we have on life, and that He will not call us home before then, that God's moral will will be accomplished within our lives, and that His preferred will will be done. And we as God's people are called and challenged to pray these prayers and these words that the will of God be met without opposition wherever it may meet people. Jesus here does something with these first three. They're focused on God and they're focused on spiritual things. The advancement of God's name, His kingdom, and His will. Now He switches to more earthly things about us. And the first He begins with our daily need. Next, Christ encourages prayer in the realm of daily need. Christ's order in modeling prayer is not one that should go unnoticed. Jesus first honors God and prays for the advancement of spiritual things, but now having prioritized God, moves into the realm of physical need. And Jesus does just that. He focuses on need. Never does He ever focus on greed. Even in His terms, He focuses on bread a humble means of supplying our body with the nutrition that it needs. This isn't a milk and honey prayer of riches and glamour. This is a prayer of need and not greed. Jesus' prayer is one in which focus is primarily on our daily need. We're not thinking days out, weeks out, months out, or years out. We're focusing on what we need in this moment. Now there's an inference to be made here which begins ultimately in Matthew chapter 6, verse 5. When Jesus says, and when you pray, in Matthew 6, verse 5, the inference is this, that the model prayers have in themselves the expectation of continual prayer. Jesus doesn't say, if you pray, if you find yourself in need of prayer, this is what you should do. He says, when you pray, there is expectation. Jesus' prayer then goes on to say, pray thus, Father, give us our this day our daily bread. Again, the idea of daily is one in which we have to learn to be satisfied enough with what we've been given for the day. Thus, we are to renew our petition every day, always finding dependence upon God. And the promise is thus found in Philippians 4.19, And my God shall supply all your need according to His riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Next, Jesus moves on to the spiritual side of our needs. And he asks God for the forgiveness of sins. This is not a prayer that Jesus prayed for himself. He models this for us as his children. Jesus had a perfect and sinless life. And so when he prays for the forgiveness of sins, that should clue us into the fact that he is modeling prayer. And he's showing how and what you as a child of God can do and say in prayer. And prayer should always involve a conversation with God regarding our spiritual state and position with Him, and that might require asking for the forgiveness of our sin. 
Prayer is our avenue to seek forgiveness from God after our conversion through baptism. John would write in 1 John 1 verse 9 that if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess, if we go before God and say the same thing that God says about sin, God says with a guarantee that I will forgive your sins, I will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. David would remember his prayer asking for forgiveness in Psalm 32 verse 5. He would say, I acknowledge my sin to you, O God, and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Prayer is the perfect opportunity to return our lives that have sinned to a proper relationship with God. We can't miss those moments. And we can't think that the world and different views of how we get rid of sin or what God has as an expectation for us. Instead, God expects those who are His children who have sinned to come to Him in prayer. Or maybe not themselves, but the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And the prayer of our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ can help in our lives as we need to make correction from sin. Jesus focuses on past sin. Lord, forgive us of our sin. And He closes by focusing on the potential for future sin. And He prays for deliverance from temptation and from the evil one. Jesus transitions from past to potential future. And He would pray for deliverance. There's some struggle at times regarding the idea that we should pray for God not to lead us into temptation. As James would say of God in James 1 verse 13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does He Himself tempt anyone. The trouble arises in many minds when they try and couple a God who does not tempt with a prayer that prays for God not to lead them into temptation. Now I'll say this as we begin to wrap everything up. It's important to note the term translated temptation can have, depending on the context, either a negative connotation to entice to sin or a positive sense to test. Now James chapter 1 does teach that God will test. He will approve and He will work with us as one works with gold and fire. And since God is the one petitioned to help us through this, one commentator said that this condition is for God not to bring us into a state of trial and severe testing, such trials that we may not make it through. Linsky adds that we're asking God to keep us out of some situations because our faith could not endure them and in other situations so to strengthen us that we may be victorious. We're asking God to see us through the hard times and to not put us in situations that are far too difficult for us to overcome. But even more, Jesus models that our prayer should include a plea for deliverance from Satan, the evil one, and all his works. There's an answer promised to this prayer. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, where he says, No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape, that you may be able to bear it. God promises a way of escape. God promises an answer to these final words that Jesus gives. And part of that escape is modeled by Christ in His prayers, and that is prayer itself. One of the ways we escape Satan's temptations is by going to God in prayer.